Welcome back to Love Murder Current Affairs, our show about the cases of love gone fatally wrong that are in the news right now. Today, we are looking at three cases, two that are question-filled mysteries still, and one that is finally coming to resolution after a very long time. The first case involved a student who went missing, seemingly disappearing into the San Francisco fog one night never to be seen again. In fall of 2020, Sydney West was experiencing the same thrill and joy of the new college experience that thousands of students feel. She had moved from North Carolina to attend the prestigious UC Berkeley in San Francisco's East Bay. Of course, 2020 was peak COVID. And despite her moving to California, all of her classes were moved to online learning. Hard for any student, but the online classes were particularly challenging for Sydney because of a concussion that she had suffered the previous summer. So she made the decision to defer until the following fall, hoping for the world to open back up. After leaving Berkeley, Sydney planned to stay for a short time in the Bay Area with family friends. On September 29th, she had a long phone conversation with her father, something that was quite normal for the highly family-oriented Sydney. Her dad was expected to hear from her the next day, but after several attempts to contact her, he got worried and contacted authorities. On October 1st, 2020, Sydney was reported missing in North Carolina before the case was transferred to San Francisco. Standard procedure given that North Carolina was still technically her home residence. As police dug in, it quickly became clear that they had something strange on their hands. Sydney had been taken to the Golden Gate Bridge a little before 7 a.m. on September 30th in an Uber. Around 6.45, surveillance footage showed Sydney walking towards the bridge from Chrissy Field, a popular recreation area nestled at the base of the bridge in San Francisco's Marina District. Private investigator Scott Dudick told Fox News that Sydney kind of disappears into the fog. While some asked if it might have been a case of suicide, the family and Dudick say the facts just don't line up. First of all, there had been nothing to indicate that Sydney was in any sort of poor mental state during the conversation with her father the night before. But even more than that, practically 6.45 is a fairly highly trafficked time around the Golden Gate Bridge. Dudek again said, you would think if somebody went and crawled up on the rails with all of those people and bike riders, somebody would have either called, which that never happened, or somebody would have tried to talk to her and then come forward with all that publicity, and that never happened. Sydney's mom, Kimberly, added, there were a lot of people on the bridge that morning, so that's what continues to baffle us. Although the case is now a couple of years old, the family continues to push and has recently had some success getting a return of media attention. They're now offering a $25,000 reward for anyone with any information that leads to her location and return. The family has set up a website with more information at findsydneywest.com, and we'll definitely link it into the show notes. Ugh, how devastating for the family. I mean, I think you're right, though. I feel like someone would have seen her. I think about all of those times where there's people saving someone who is having a suicide consideration or attempt on a bridge. Like, well, they specifically have people who volunteer to walk the Golden yep. Gate Bridge for exactly that purpose. But also 645 is prime time. I used to live in the marina. I used to walk the bridge constantly. And it can be packed at that time. It just doesn't make sense. No, not at all. Well, if you have any details, anyone at home, please go to findsydneywest.com. Again, it's in the show notes. Next up, a case that has captured significant national attention in just the last few days. 
53-year-old Dr. Devin Hoover was a neurosurgeon in Detroit. He specialized in back and neck injuries. Well, last weekend, Devin was supposed to go visit family in Indiana, but when he never showed up, they became concerned. Detroit police went to Hoover's massive museum mansion in the upscale Boston Edison neighborhood for a welfare check. After some searching, they found the doctor wrapped in a plastic sheet in the crawl space in his attic. He had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. Neighbors and community members were stunned. One neighbor told a local news station, that man was an angel. He was beautiful. Everybody was shocked. My phone has been blowing up all night. I was like, no, no, no. Another said, was one of the first neighbors to take me under their wing, offering old house advice, support, and kindness all along the way. Yet another neighbor said that the death was very sad and very surprising because, quote, this doesn't happen out here. So far, the police have released very little information other than to say that they believe the homicide might be related to a domestic incident. Hoover was believed to be single and living alone at the time of his death. Hoover's car was found in another location, reportedly on the west side of the city. In the wake of the news, a public Facebook group called Justice for Dr. Devin Hoover has already attracted more than 1,200 members. The majority of the posts are tributes to the ways in which Hoover helped his community, both through his medical practice, but also through his charitable involvement. Yet, as is to be expected, some also focus on questions surrounding the case. One person wrote, I'm devastated, as all of you are. Has anyone heard of a possible suspect? It's a mystery as to why this person or persons would take the time to wrap Dr. Hoover in a sheet and take him to the attic. I doubt a random burglar would do this. Thoughts? I mean, I kind of agree. Totally. That also sparked a debate about whether the Facebook group should be used for theories, with some arguing that if this was a random attack, local residents deserve to know. The Facebook group is really amazing. It's full of people who quite literally wouldn't be alive if it were not for him. So many in that community were hoping that there can be justice sooner rather than later. We'll keep you posted as more details come to light. Oh, it sounds like he did so much good. I mean, who would want him dead? It's interesting. It actually feels reminiscent of last week's current affairs with Bob Lee, where it was assumed at the beginning that it might have been a random attack and people were talking about if it was safe in San yep. Francisco. And it seems like some early conjecture has been about it potentially being a burglary. But I think that commenter was correct. I think it's going to end up being personal, but that's just my speculation. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Like we promised, although our first two stories still have more questions than answers, our third and final story today has some resolution. On May 26, 1990, 40-year-old Marlene Warren answered the door of her Florida home to find a clown looking at her. Undoubtedly confused, unfortunately, would be the last thing that she ever saw as the clown handed her a bouquet of carnations and two balloons, then pulled out a gun and executed Marlene in cold blood. Terrifying. There were a few witnesses. Neighbors confirmed seeing a clown hand Marlene flowers and balloons before shooting her. The murder also took place in front of Marlene's then 21-year-old son, Joseph. Terrible. There was some significant circumstantial evidence. A woman named Sheila Keene had been identified by workers at a local costume store, having bought a clown costume a few days before the slaying. Sheila had also bought a balloon that said, You're the greatest, at a Publix near her house only an hour 
before the murder happened. In spite of this, prosecutors never believed they had enough evidence to get a conviction and the case went cold. That was until 2014 when authorities determined that advances in DNA technology matched with the previous inscrutable evidence meant it was worth reopening the case. In 2017, authorities arrested Sheila in Virginia. Except now, she was going by Debbie. And she was married to Michael Warren, Marlene's widower. (sighs) Authorities say that Sheila was working at Michael's used car dealership and they were having an affair at the time of the murder, a fact which Michael and Sheila both denied. The couple were married in 2002 and Michael has never been implicated in Marlene's death. After being arrested in Virginia, Sheila Debbie was extradited to Palm Beach County, Florida, where she had been awaiting trial for first-degree murder. However, on Tuesday, she pleaded guilty to second-degree murder as part of a plea deal that had been approved by Marlene's family. According to ABC, the plea deal calls for a 12-year sentence, though Keen Warren's attorney told reporters outside the courtroom that he expects her to be home in 10 months. Unbelievable. Unreal. Sheila maintains her innocence, with her attorneys saying this was simply the best way that she could guarantee getting home to her family. Ugh, I bet they think so. Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Ehrenberg, on the other hand, said Sheila Keen Warren has finally been forced to admit that she was the one who dressed as a clown and took the life of an innocent victim. She will be a convicted murderer for the rest of her days. And I hope everyone remembers that. Killer clowns. That is is my least favorite trope. (laughs) Okay, well, what a set of cases this week. Hopefully we'll get some updates on the first two that we talked about, Andy. But until next time, I'm Jesse Prey. And I'm Andy Cassette, signing off for Love Murder Current Affairs. <laughs>